Hello, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. On this series, we explore the opportunities and challenges facing the Higher Education Business Office. I'm Liz Clark, Vice President for Policy and Research at Nakubo. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Katie Walker, Assistant Vice President for Finance at the University of Virginia. Hello, Katie. Good afternoon, Liz. It's really great to have you here. And uh, the last time I saw you was at the Nakubo Annual Meeting in Orlando, and uh, you were the recipient of Nakubo's 2023 Rising Star Award. So congratulations again on that. Uh, Thank you. That recognition. Thank you. It was it was great to see everyone at the at the annual meeting and uh, really honored to receive the award. Well, I know that so many of us were so pleased to see you receive it. And it was a part of the overall just joy that many people told me they felt at the meeting this year. So we are coming together here today to talk about a recent project from Nakubo, our look at the top issues impacting the higher education business office. For the second year in a row, Nakubo surveyed its members on the top business issues facing colleges and universities now, with input from business officers from public and private colleges and universities across the country, Nakubo identified a number of issues as the most pressing business issues in 2023. Now, keep in mind, these are just the top five issues. We know there were plenty of other challenges our institutions are navigating. But Katie has joined me today to take a look at these challenges, and I'm going to jump right in, Katie. Great. So first, uh, the issue that came out on top was challenges supporting and maintaining the workforce. We know that collectively, higher education institutions employ almost 4 million people, individuals who are vital to our students and our institution's success. In our survey, our members cited competitive pay, benefits, and staff turnover, in particular the retirements of long-serving staff, as creating challenges with maintaining the higher education workforce. Katie, what can you tell me from your experience? How are challenges related to the workforce, costs, and turnover impacting your institution? Yeah, so if I remember correctly, this was the top issue for us last year as well. Obviously, it's still a challenge for all of us. I know here at UVA, we face these challenges every day. We employ nearly 18,000 people, mostly in the Charlottesville, Virginia area. But the city of Charlottesville and the surrounding Albemarle County have under 200,000 residents as of the last census projections. So this makes us the largest employer in the re- in the region, bringing both benefits and challenges. And I think a lot of institutions can relate to that. The benefits, you know, we're seen as a top employer and a good place to work. And we were uh, recently validated in this with top marks in the Forbes Best Employers list. So that's great news. And where possible, we've been able to grant more flexibility to our staff in terms of where they work. We learned that through COVID, many jobs can be completed partially or fully remotely. And we do have employees at this point in nearly every state in the country and even some international. And we regularly run national searches for key positions. But that being said, we've faced numerous staffing challenges over the past few years. You know, you mentioned turnover. Our units often, a lot of our units still have double-digit vacancy rates in many cases, and this puts tremendous pressure on our employees. 
as they not only have to complete additional duties, but they also have to manage searches and onboarding for new staff, sometimes only to see another staff member leave before the new one comes on board. And I talked about our size relative to our area's population. This brings additional challenges, especially for the majority of our jobs that are at least partially on site, as we struggle to find qualified candidates in the area for these jobs. Anecdotally, we've seen increases in the number of applicants in our pools over the last six months. So that potentially bodes well for us in filling these positions. But as you mentioned earlier, we anticipate increasing retirements. So the need to fill our current vacancies is becoming more and more urgent. And as for competitive pay, we've been fortunate to be able to give larger annual merit increases over the past two years, led by the budget approved by the Commonwealth of Virginia. And this has helped increase our base pay and competitiveness for faculty and staff, but it comes with significant financial challenges as well, as these increases are only partially funded with increased state appropriations. Additionally, we're still finding in some areas that new hires are coming in at higher salaries than the people they're replacing. And that's a combination of the really still hot hiring market and inflation that in some cases is outpacing salary increases. So that creates kind of an expectation of increased compensation for people we're trying to hire. So our institution is doing really everything we can think of to reach closer to full staffing, everything from undertaking analyses of our faculty and staff compensation, reorganizing job duties to allow for right-sized compensation, allowance for hybrid or fully remote work where possible, provision of sign-on bonuses, moving allowances where we can, creation of pipeline programs to facilitate hiring in key frontline areas, job training programs, job fairs around the region, um, improved career services for current employees, and increased educational opportunities. And we're trying all of it because we know we can't solve the issue with one idea. So we're trying to pull all the levers to ensure adequate staffing. It sounds like there was a really intense investment in programs, services, and needing to find resources for salaries. So that is quite a lift over the last uh, few years. I I did want to ask one follow-up question on your remote staff policy. I know following COVID, a number of institutions really looked closely at what new policies might entail. And we read the papers every day. There are still debates about bringing people back to the office. We see some companies making major shifts to bring employees back to the office more frequently. Do you feel that your university has settled on its remote work policies or are these still in flux at UVA? I would say that we're we're settled on our current path, but that doesn't mean that there's not significant discussion. You know, we know that we're struggling and I think a lot of people are struggling with how do we maintain um, a good workplace culture when people don't see each other around the building, when they don't have those chances for the casual conversation. You know, it feels really formal to call someone on Zoom to just chat and catch up. So I think that's a bit of a struggle. We also have units. We, we allow that flexibility at the manager level and at the unit level, the decision-making around workplace flexibility. And so we have units taking different approaches across, across campus. And, and that creates discussions as well, you know, in our staff senate, our faculty senate about certain positions being remote eligible in certain units and not in other units. So while I think 
we're not likely to change in the short term, it doesn't mean that there's not significant discussion around really what's best for the institution, what's best for our students, what's best for our mission. I think anytime there's change, there's a long tail of discussion, questions, and turning dials to make sure you think that new policies were, were created fairly and implemented well and having the right impact. Let's uh, let's move on to the next topic. You're right. There are some similarities between this year's issues and last year's issues. Uh, we have a uh, second on our list, ensuring successful student outcomes. The pandemic exacerbated the challenges students face from financial challenges to being academically prepared for college. Uh, students are bringing mental health issues uh, to campus, and, and there are more. Uh, how are some of these issues playing out at UVA, and are your students experiencing other challenges, and what role does the business office play in meeting these challenges? We did see increases in financial need during COVID, and um, like many institutions, are really grateful for the inflow of federal funds for emergency financial aid. We continue to see the impact, even as that aid has has been spent, um, especially as students and their families fill in their FAFSAs with prior prior year tax information for 2023, 2024, and even 2025 academic years when they may not have had full employment from 2020 to 2022. For UVA students, the good news is that we're need blind and we meet full financial need through our Access UVA program. And this helped provide the financial stability students needed through the pandemic. And we will continue to do that as they weather the pandemic tax years in the FAFSA form. We did see a significant increase in appeals related to financial aid during the pandemic as well, when those tax years were reflective of pre-COVID income levels, but our families were potentially facing partial or full unemployment. And as we move forward from the pandemic, we continue to analyze how best to meet the student need and how to predict the cost in meeting that need. So that's a that's a critical role of the business office in, in specifically financial need and, and financial aid. Turning to to our outcomes for our students, you know, we expect at UVA and at really every institution, we expect a lot academically from our students, and they go through a very competitive application process just to step foot on our grounds. They're often the top students at their respective high schools. That being said, like many institutions, we're seeing the effects of the pandemic on recent classes. Those students who lost key high school years to Zoom and subsequently need more supports entering college. I mean, anecdotally, even after move-in, I had people tell me who volunteered at this move-in versus the previous move-in that even just the students at this move-in seemed more connected socially than the previous move-in. You know, so hopefully we're starting to come out of that a little more. You know, what they had observed was the students last year at move-in were more attached to their parents, not really talking to each other as much. It's seeing a little more of that coming out of the shell at move-in. I mean, it's it's small steps, and, and that's just an anecdote, but maybe we're seeing a little more of that. But, you know, we are still seeing those effects. So it's a key focus for our student affairs colleagues, you know, getting those students socially and emotionally prepared for college early in their tenure with us so they can thrive academically. Our student affairs professionals also aim to make the students aware of key resources. You know, we have our Student Disability Access Center, that can help them receive necessary accommodations. And we're seeing increased requests there, career services, key offices that facilitate internships and scholarships, and even many of our clubs and student organizations, again, with the goal of keeping them connected so they have that base to really thrive academically. And as I'm sure comes up often 
related to our student outcomes is there's there's a key mental health component here. We've seen significant increases in mental health needs over the past few years. We've tried to meet those needs specifically at UVA. We've had a large expansion of our student health space into a new student health building, um, as well as increased resources, including 24-7 telehealth. And the telehealth has been especially helpful for many reasons, including that the accessibility of 24-7 care that students can get from their bedrooms. And it's also helped because, you know, we touched on staffing issues. This is, this is bringing in the help from outside. So it helps alleviate some of the pressure on our staff. But overall, it's, it's top of mind in really every initiative. And the role of the business office is to help folks out in the field plan for how to roll out these initiatives, how to fund those initiatives, and, and looking at the sustainability of these initiatives and whether the outcomes are actually coming through that we expected. So I know when we look at how budgets reflect expenses in this area, these are actually often considered administrative expenses rather than academic expenses. All of the services that you just mentioned, from mental health services to straight-up healthcare services or even some other types of advising, as you seek resources, you are looking for more administrative resources. How are you approaching this in your budget and planning process? How's your institution budgeting for these investments in student success? First and foremost, it's it's making sure that we're distinguishing, you know, these administrative expenses that have a direct effect on students versus what people really think of when they think of administrative expenses like myself. You know, I am an administrative expense. I don't have a frontline role with students. But when you talk about adding a staff psychologist to our to our student health center, Yes, technically, that's another staff member. And when you go to look at staff headcounts, that's an increase in staff headcount. But that person has a direct effect on the student experience. So some of this is just being able to make sure that we have the data behind the scenes to adequately describe where we're increasing and why. And actually, you know, since we're on the call here talking with Nakubo, one focus recently at our institution has been making sure that people are aware of the Nakubo functional classifications um, and making sure that they're coding appropriately so that we can use that as yet another data point to describe where we're seeing increases in costs and what those costs are going toward. We know just how critical data and analytics are to this strategic budget and planning at colleges and universities. So, Katie, thank you for for bringing that up and, and mentioning that. I think that people often think of the difficult conversations that are had, but often those conversations are informed by data so that strategic decisions can be made on just how to distribute budget and plan. Let's move on to our third issue area, which uh, is related to data, securing and modernizing the technology infrastructure. That was number three on this year's list. And our Nakuo members cited navigating cybersecurity issues, modernizing technology systems to improve operations, and using data, uh, the data necessary for institutions to, to tackle these problems. But all of these solutions require new investments. How has your institution prioritized these issues when there are so many in the area of necessary technology infrastructure improvements? Like many institutions out there, we're continuing to see uh, cybersecurity issues threaten our systems, as well as the, you know, we talked about data, as well as the critical data they hold, our student, our financial, our employee, and we have a health system, so even our patient data. 
we treat this as essentially an emergency and ascribe that level of urgency to each of these issues, given that sensitivity. And I think through all of that work, we're able to bolster our ability to withstand incursions, but that comes at a cost, as you mentioned. In some cases, it's a relatively small financial cost with an inconvenience factor. I'm sure we all know and love dual authentication. I know our (laughs) students do. Um, (laughs) But in other cases, we we need to make major upgrades. We need to upgrade our aging ERPs, our computing infrastructure, and maybe even our telecommunications. So it's it's top of mind here at UVA. Last year, we transitioned to a new finance ERP. We proceeded a few years ago by our HCM transition. One of our larger focuses now is upgrading our research computing infrastructure to support our current and growing sponsored and non-sponsored research portfolios, as well as the computing intensive work of our students. But to do this work, we have to upgrade our on-prem and cloud computing infrastructure, as well as invest in new staff. So all these areas tie back to your first topic, essentially, which is staffing. We have to ensure that the staff here are trained to maintain our tools, as well as our faculty, staff, and students are trained to effectively use our tools in their day-to-day work. And actually that they're aware of the threats that come up against those tools every day. I mean, I know our IT area periodically does a test just to see how many people might essentially fail at a phishing uh, email, you know, things like that. We need to get an idea of what our risk level is and what our risk tolerance is. But going back to the training of, of the people who actually use the tools, this is where employee recruitment plays into both the system maintenance and the system use. And we face really a culture change and a significant training needs to move our use of technology into the future. Any change in technology, I know, can be difficult for an organization. Do you have any tips on how you help communicate the strategic decisions that go into upgrading or changing tools? Often, I know people get so used to a certain tool, it takes them a lot of energy and effort to understand why the strategic change. Do you have any thoughts on, on how, to, how to address that hurdle at schools or other organizations? I think it's honesty at the front end, you know, making sure you're being really honest about why we're changing, especially because, you know, as we talked, there's there's always a significant cost to it. So people want to know, you know, why are we spending this money here as opposed to on something like student success? Um, and there's got to be a really good answer for it and one that leadership feels strongly brings it to the top of that priority list. So I think that's that's really what will help bring people along. But then, you know, it's the follow through, really. It's making sure that those end users feel like they got enough attention to understand what that implementation meant for me. You know, it's the it's the with them, right? The what's in it for me and making sure that they actually felt like someone was paying attention to them and their needs in that process. And at the end of the day, it's it's for a lot of the users, it's not the please provide me the strategic reason why we're doing this. It's help me continue to do my job. How do I do that? Um, and so paying attention to both ends of the spectrum is when you're paying when you're going through a technology change. Katie, I think one of the terms that I've overused in some places is change management. Um, but I think change management is so important. And I'm going to credit you with giving me a new term to introduce that idea with them. I've not heard that what's in it for me acronym before. So uh, that that's definitely something I'm putting in my back pocket as I walk away from this conversation. Kind of fun to say. <laughs> it is. It is. And memorable. And memorable. 
Let's move on to the next topic, which is navigating affordability and enrollment management. Uh, Higher education business and finance leaders have long been walking what we would call a tightrope. As educators, we want to ensure that a college is affordable, but we also at institutions rely on tuition revenue to ensure that the education that is being offered is high quality. So, So, Katie, students, families, policymakers, they express more and more concern over the price of access to college. Yet we know as business officers that many institutions are tuition dependent. They rely on those tuition payments for operating revenue to pay faculty, to pay custodial staff, to run heat and cooling plants. Are you exploring any new approaches to revenue or um, perhaps new budget models to think about how resources are allocated? We've actually re-implemented our hybrid RCM model starting in fiscal 23. So We're trying to go into a stability period at this point, but it doesn't mean that we're not paying attention to all of our funding sources. You know, we're we're dependent on tuition and fees like many other institutions to fund a very significant portion of our expenses. So we're constantly weighing the growth of the cost of education for our students and families against our ability to fund expenses, either through other revenue sources or through reallocation of existing resources. As I mentioned previously, we're growing our emphasis in the annual budget process. We're trying to have units identify places where they can do strategic reallocations or efficiencies, you know, ways that we can sunset, streamline, or reorganize our current activities to allow room for investment elsewhere. And this comes especially as we've navigated inflation. We're not alone in this. We've navigated inflation of, you know, up to 9% annual compensation increases set by the state of 5% or more. And we know we can't turn around and ask that the full burden of those rising costs fall to our students and families. So we have to seek other ways to continue our operations and mitigate those financial impacts. And another consideration for us is that in our commitment to meet full need, if we increase the cost of attendance, we know our students' needs will increase and we need to ensure that those are met. We know that just increasing tuition in and of itself is not necessarily the lever we want to pull. So we're working to address those funding needs through our fundraising efforts, um, improvements in our planning tools so that people can have more visibility into where their expenses are, where their revenues are, and where they might be able to make uh, small or large changes to help, um, again, mitigate the need for tuition increases. And we've also increased communication internally amongst planners and decision makers. We find that the more we can share ideas, successes, and even failures, then the more we can learn, adapt, and find innovative ways to mitigate those tuition and fee increase needs. Kitty, one of the points you raised was really important to our survey respondents. We saw in some of our open-ended comments in response to our survey that just the overall economic environment influenced all of these issues. And I think this particular issue area, affordability and enrollment management, was certainly a great example of just how much economic pressure and uncertainty impact what college and university business officers are trying to solve for. Where is inflation going? Are interest rates going to go up? Are they going to go down? What's happening with the labor force? Uh, And uh, those issues 
impact institutions, as employers, as financial decision makers. But as you clearly said, it also impacts students and the decision making that they have and the choices that they have to make in their own personal budgets as they make decisions as consumers, both as students on campus and um, as prospective students and making the decisions uh, that they'll that they will make as to where to go to college. I want to get a little wonky here for a minute and just dig into something that you mentioned. Some of our listeners are not business officers, uh, not finance professionals or budget professionals. And you mentioned RCM, Responsibility Center Management. I'm wondering if maybe you could provide just a couple sentences to explain what RCM means and, and why that matters when it comes to thinking about navigating affordability. I mentioned we're hybrid, so there's kind of pure models versus, you know, hybrid models. And what it means for us is that, you know, we really send all revenue out to our schools. We have 12 schools at UVA. So all of the revenues they generated, you know, 100% of their of their facilities and administrative recoveries from sponsored research, all of their tuition, undergrad and grad, we send that out to the schools. So they see full revenues, they also see full expense, and then they pay an allocated cost to cover central service operations. Um, so in that way, they really have a full accounting of of their activity as well as an overhead cost. So what that means in tuition is is we really have to consider the impact of a tuition increase or not increase or the level of the increase on each of those individual schools um, and even each of the individual programs within those schools. Um, there's different markets for the different programs. There's different um, competitiveness for the programs. So we take that all into consideration when we're going through the tuition and fee process, which we actually just launched last week here at the institution. It really does mean that we have a very decentralized model. And I've been at you know, other another institution where we had a very centralized model in terms of setting tuition and and managing budgets, and it's ve- it's a very different type of environment. We really have to take into consideration all of the different units and the impacts. We could do an entire podcast on RCM or hybrid RCM models and how they vary across institutions and why they work for some and perhaps not for others. So, thank you for taking a minute to explain that. Let's turn to our, our fifth and final issue area, which is the physical infrastructure. Uh, I mentioned heating and cooling, and, and that, that someone relates to this physical infrastructure issue. Our business officers are always thinking about campus buildings and how to best use the space, deferred maintenance, exploring efficient energy solutions. In today's post-pandemic environment, some are also wondering if there's ways to transform certain physical spaces that may be a cost center to a source of revenue for the institution. Can you talk a little bit about how your institution is thinking about its physical space? Are there ways to turn space into revenue generation uh, rather than uh, a drain on resources? We have a lot of work to do over the next few years to consider really everything you just asked about. Um, we have significant capital projects underway with some of them nearing completion. We have additional projects on the horizon as well that are in the early stages of planning. And some of this is new space and some of it's replacement or renovation of space we previously had. So, for example, our main library has undergone a significant rebuild at, you know, and closures from covid and we're happy uh, our students who have never set foot in the main library will have an opportunity to do so this academic year before they graduate. Um, so at least at least they got a little bit. 
And then with some of our new space, we're already projecting full or more than full assignment of spaces. We know sometimes that growth can outpace our ability to build. You know, by the time you open the doors, they say, all right, we're already full. So mixed with these infusions of new spaces are our need to analyze existing space use, both owned and leased. And our hybrid and remote work flexibility is a great benefit we can offer to some employees, but the flexibility can make it difficult to plan our space needs. So for example, we allow managers and units the discretion to set workplace flexibility guidelines. Their decisions could vary based on the location needs, the job duties, and, and frankly, employees' home locations. So for example, if they were hired out of state, we're probably not requiring them to report in the office regularly. And that variable approach makes it difficult to take a comprehensive approach to space planning, as does, as you we talked about, our RCM model. We're very decentralized in our budget planning, and the same goes with our space management. Um, so we're currently piloting some smaller space studies with plans for more in future years, especially as units settle into what becomes their more permanent in-person hybrid or remote operations. And although we haven't planned to venture into revenue generation around our spaces, we're especially mindful of the cost savings possibilities. So including savings on external leases, savings on O&M for unused spaces, even potential savings on future large-scale capital projects. It's a longer project, not only because there's a lot going on, but it requires us to think hard and make long-term decisions about our space and our organizations. You know, are red units ready to give up underutilized space? What happens if they need the space later? What if units want to give up more space than other units want to claim, and we end up with unused owned space? Who pays for the O&M while that space is vacant? There's so many questions to be answered, and that's why it's a longer-term project on our list. And you mentioned deferred maintenance. In this realm, we're really fortunate to have both robust state support and a very firm leadership commitment to the upkeep of our physical plant. We tightly monitor the conditions of our facilities in line with industry benchmarks, and our facilities are in generally good condition. That being said, the average age of our of our ENG buildings at the end of fiscal year 22 was 77 years. So we know that continual maintenance is key, especially given our status as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And as we improve and maintain these facilities, we're always looking for ways to make them more sustainable as that cost in the short term outweighs the long-term cost of an inefficient building. So we know the average age of our buildings will always be relatively high given the historic nature of our grounds. Uh, So the more we can do to preserve and sustain, the better. But I'll close with one exciting example to somewhat address your question of reducing the extent to which space is a drain on our resources. One of our upcoming capital projects is for a new central energy plant, which not only helps us meet the growing energy needs of our campus, it'll also be the first zero combustion and fossil-free central energy plant that we have. And this will help us greatly as that centralized approach to energy generation is more economical but also the thermal energy generated by the plant will move us much further along in our sustainability goals. I think these are all incredible examples of just how hard the challenges are when it comes to responding to physical infrastructure question, but the opportunities that are there to um, meet needs in new ways and be prepared for the future. What I particularly found interesting was you mentioned a solution that's being implemented to the first problem, a workforce issue that allows for new policies that respond to employee needs. But what makes things so challenging is that it maybe perhaps creates problems that exacerbate 
other issue areas like physical infrastructure. So that was a, a really interesting example about just how complex but interconnected these issues may be. Uh, a question for you is we've run down these five issues, supporting the workforce, ensuring successful student outcomes, uh, securing and modernizing the technology infrastructure, meeting physical infrastructure needs, and navigating affordability and enrollment manager. Has anything stuck out that, that may have been missing from this list to you? Is there anything that perhaps you've been dealing with or your institution or other colleagues that you know are dealing with that, that didn't rise to the top of the list here? I don't think so. I mean, I think I think the list is appropriately ordered um, with workforce at the top because really the workforce plays into every single one of these. And even, you know, none of these are sort of business office specific, right? We don't have the top issue is our business office. And that's because we support all of these functions. So, you know, just highlighting for business officers that, of course, the workforce is difficult for us too. And ensuring that we have sufficient staffing to help meet all of these issues is is especially important in the coming years. Katie, I love that. The business offices exist but for to serve the various other elements of the institution and to keep the institution running and moving forward in service of its mission. Are there any other additional final thoughts that you'd like to share? Well, so thank you, Liz, first for this opportunity. I guess my only final offering is that there's really not one easy answer to any of these questions. You know, at the end of the day, We need to consider all options, even ones that appear really small, and consider that the sum of many small actions can be really big. So additionally, all these issues are tied together in some way. So consider, for example, how you might improve staff retention if you ask staff for their ideas to improve student success and actually implemented them. Again, no matter how small. And the impact for those individual staff could be huge. The leadership asked for their ideas and actually listened. That gives them a reason to stay and stay engaged. And their initiatives could move the needle on student success. That's a win-win situation. I'd also add that we shouldn't discount the help we can provide to each other. Institutions of higher ed, our partners like Nakubo, and really even our vendor community. It never hurts to reach out and ask for help on an issue. Katie, I I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of solutions and connections and collaboration. And uh, I am so glad to have connected with you here today. Thank you Uh, again, Katie Walker, Assistant Vice President for Finance at the University of Virginia. Thank you listeners for joining us today on Nakubo for Nakubo in Brief. Uh, You can find additional resources mentioned during this episode on the Nakubo in Brief webpage at nakubo.org. 